Welcome everyone to the Top Producer Podcast. This is Paul Neefer, your host. And today we're gonna to have a conversation with Mark Arnish, who is a farmer, a farm family in, I would say North Central, Northeast Colorado. Mark, would you say North Central or Northeast or a little bit of uh, between each? Well, it's, I would call it Northeastern Colorado, about 35 miles just outside of Denver. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, which is uh, is sort of my home neck of the woods now, now that we've moved from Washington State to Parker. So you're about eh, 50 miles away from me. So uh, uh, how are things going today? You know, things are going well. We have great fall harvest weather. We're trying to pick our last field of dryland corn, but uh, uh, things have been good. We, we've received a little bit of moisture here recently, so things are off to a good start, at least uh, from our perspective. Well, unlike a typical year in Colorado, uh, we've actually had an excess of moisture this year, especially in May and June timeframe. Matter of fact, I think, didn't you plant your last corn sometime toward the end of June or something like that? We planted our last dryland cornfield the 24th of June, yes. Yep, so, <laughs> which is, uh, I would say, slightly unusual for Colorado. It's very unusual for Colorado since uh, the first of May till the time we harvested our wheat crop, we picked up nearly 17 inches of rainfall on our farm. And uh, that's the kind of rainfall we'll receive in two or three years combined, not in just a couple months. Yeah, I, I know when uh, I live near Elizabeth and they had mentioned sometime late June that for the month of May and through the end of June at that point, Elizabeth already had 20 inches of rain. And I'm guessing we were very similar to that. But that's enough on the weather, although most farmers like to hear about the weather. But uh, let's move on. Like I always try to start on these podcasts is uh, your background, where you grew up, went to college, got married and all that good stuff. Sure. So I've grown up uh, in Prospect Valley my entire life. I, In fact, I live only about 600 yards away from where I grew up as a kid, so I didn't get very uh, far away from home. Uh, when I graduated from high school, I went off to college. I received a degree in uh, agricultural economics, and I'm happy to say I'm a proud CSU alumni, Colorado State <laughs> University. So when I graduated from college and came back to the farm, it was right on the heels of the farm crisis of the late 80s and early 1990s. And I can tell you that I wasn't necessarily welcomed with open arms into my family operation. Um, my my dad uh, didn't see a future in agriculture for me. He, he thought it was going to be a tough, tough living. And so he wanted me to put my college education to work. Uh, somewhere else. But as it turns out, I used a lot of those skills and education and brought it back into our family farm. Um, when I started farming, I, I got married right away, started farming. I grew nine different crops on our farm, sugar beets, onions, uh, sunflowers, uh, dry beans, wheat, pinto beans, alfalfa, you name it, we were growing it because uh, diversification was the way to survive, or at least that's what I learned in college. But I really found early in my farming career that value added was a great place to live. You know, I, I mentioned that we grew sugar beets and onions. Uh, sugar beet is very much a value added crop in this area. And uh, the sugar beet is actually what brought my family to this country in 1952 when we immigrated from Austria. I'm a third generation farmer, but I'm a first generation U.S. born farmer here. But the value added crop that we really kind of enhanced our farm and the, and put us on the map was the onion. Uh, onions were not grown in Prospect Valley. It was something new that I introduced. I, I used some relationships that were in the onion industry to learn how to grow the crop. 
But then we became processors, packers, and shippers. Uh, I shipped my crop to 32 states and to four foreign countries. Uh, but then a few things changed. Uh, access to labor became a huge issue. Uh, profitability was certainly something that we were challenged with. Uh, food safety standards had changed in the onion space to the point where I could no longer comply with a lot of the food safety regulations. So we pivoted. Uh, we pivoted hard into a value-added sector that uh, is on some people's landscapes, but not a lot. We, we pivoted into growing certified seed wheat, seed barley, and when we did that, that helped us move into the space that we enjoy here today, and that is growing grains for the craft beer and spirits industry. You see, we ship grain from our farm to well over 20 different locations across the U.S. right now, um, both on the seed and on the grain side itself. And that's really what's carrying the balance sheet for our farm right now is the specialty grain piece. So the seed barley, I mean, the barley would be what's going into beer and then wheat. Is that going into some type of distillery or uh, let's expand a little bit on where those products would normally go? Sure. So our, our malt barley, our seed barley, that's very much dedicated to the craft beer industry. There are some barleys that are used in some of the clear spirits, but the overwhelming majority of the barley we ship goes into the beer space. Uh, so for your listeners, our, our barley is found in, in beers like New Belgium, uh, Horse and Dragon, uh, Oscar Blues. Uh, you'll even find some of our grain in some of the Corona uh, product lines, uh, certainly some of the craft beer within the Coors and Molson uh, offerings. But then we grow two specialty wheats on our farm. Uh, one was developed at a Colorado State University, and then the other one is actually an heirloom wheat variety. Uh, those two wheat varieties are channeled specifically into the clear spirits, uh, some of the whiskeys, some bourbons, and we currently are shipping to probably about 15 or 20 different distilleries, those two wheat varieties. Now, is that a hard red, soft red, or wh what type of uh, wheat would that be? One of the wheats that was de developed out of Colorado State University is a hard white wheat, Okay. And okay. the other one is Sonora. It's a wheat variety that can be traced back to probably 2,000, 2,500 years ago. And uh, I can tell you, I'm thankful that we certainly don't have those wheat varieties to grow on a large scale like that anymore, because Sonora tries to die every day of its life. But um, <laughs> it's a high value crop that uh, we channel into those spaces. And uh, you know, one of the things that we've really learned in that craft distilling space is to work the equation backwards. You know, too often as a farmer, we get caught up in growing a commodity. And that means uh, when you grow a commodity, success means growing more. And what we found out is we've got to understand and learn the vernacular of a craft distiller. We need to not just know how many bushels we have or what the moisture content is, but we really need to understand what the glucan strands are. You know, what, what temperature will this grain sprout? You know, what's the complex starch proteins within the, the kernel and can we enhance that through management? And so we've really learned to understand what the needs and, and wants are of the distiller. And we try to work that equation back into the field. Uh, so far, we've been super fortunate to hit a lot of those production targets for quality, and that's what's helped us grow our business. So if you're trying to, on the starch side, are you trying to increase starch, reduce starch? And, and to do that, is that via more water, less water? I'm just sort of curious on that. 
certainly on the starch side, we're trying to enhance the quality of starch so that a lot of that we found is due to fertility, trying to keep that crop as uh, risk adverse as possible, take it, take it careful on, on the management side of things. Um, one of the things that we really found that enhances starch is only irrigating at night. Uh, for whatever reason, overhead sprinkler irrigation tends to put that crop into stress during our hot summer days. And so when the temperature rises to about 81 to 82 degrees, we shut our pivots off. And then we wait until that temperature falls uh, below that threshold and we turn our pivots back on. And uh, we found that by accident. Uh, we, we found that management practice from a grower down in uh, um, Australia that uh, we had met through the National Wheat Yield Growing Competition. And, and he talked about minimizing stress and, and uh, that was a breakthrough for us on the quality side. Yeah, so if it gets, uh, like I say, it gets too hot, then when that water's going on there, I'm not saying it's steaming the wheat, but like you say, it's stressing the wheat. Whereas if you just do it at night, and the nice thing about Colorado, just like Washington State where I was from originally, is you might have a hot day, but it's definitely gonna cool down at night. Exactly. Okay. So let's let's just dive in a little bit more as far as the the size of the farm right now, how it's managed, maybe the number of workers and, and all that information. Today, Mark Arnish Farms encompasses just a little bit under 5,000 acres. Um, it's a family operation. So my, my son's acres are involved in that. Uh, he came back to our farm in 2018 after he graduated from Colorado State University. And then I also have my niece and nephew involved in our operation. Uh, they are first-generation farmers. They weren't actually involved in a farm family. Uh, but Casey, my nephew, came to work for us a number of years ago, and we were able to help them start a successful farming operation a couple of years ago. And he just, just recently announced that he's going to be leaving our farm operation to focus on his own. So it, it was certainly the outcome that we were looking for. Uh, it's coming to us quicker than we had thought. But gosh, what what a great opportunity for a young farm family to, to start like that. And, and we're super proud of their accomplishments. Uh, beyond those two individuals that are involved in our operation, my my wife is the glue that holds all of all of our uh, farming operation together. Uh, she's our office manager. My my niece works in the office as an office manager assistant, and then I have my daughter in law who's recently come into the operation. She's our director of business enhancement, so she focuses deeply on uh, adding value, making sure that our eyes are dotted and T's are crossed. Uh, she also works in some other divisions that we we have within our organization that lie outside of the, the farming operation. And then we have, last but not least, our most tenured employee. He's uh, been here with me since 2009, and, and Jesus is just kind of like that Swiss army knife. Uh, he can do all things, and, and so he's a valuable piece of our operation, and, and we couldn't have the success that we have without somebody like Jesus. Yeah, you need all of those to definitely make it become a smooth machine. So uh, now one of the interesting, well, maybe not interesting things because Northeast uh, Colorado has a lot of this, but uh, really one of the things that uh, enhances your farm is the fact that most of it is under irrigation. So let's let's have a discussion on, on water in Colorado. You know, how important is it to your farm operation? Well, water touches everything in Colorado, not just agriculture, but 
we have life in Colorado because of water and our mountains are certainly a great vessel to capture a lot of water in the form of snow. Uh, we have two water rights on our farm. The first is fed uh, to us through the South Platte River. So snowmelt, high mountain reservoir storage, a lot of diversions from the South Platte River. And that, that certainly is what built our area, uh, built a lot of the irrigated uh, areas of northeastern Colorado. Without the South Platte River, there wouldn't be much production agriculture in northeastern Colorado. The second water right that we have, and we're certainly blessed to have this, is an aquifer right. So we farm on top of the Lost Creek Groundwater District. It's a, uh, think about it like a bowl of water. We have this closed basin, this, this water comes through uh, the, the alluvium to us through inlets, uh, natural percolation, snowfall, irrigation, things like that. It's created this natural vessel that we farm on top of. Uh, this aquifer is very small. It's only about 33,000 acres in size, uh, but it's one of the most dependable water rights that we have in our region. Uh, since 1954, when we started taking water measurements in our aquifer, the water table in our basin has been relatively flat, meaning that it has seasonal rises and falls. Uh, but year over year, the water table has remained relatively constant. And so it was the backbone of, of the farm ground that we were able to rent early in our career. It, it was sought after as we began buying farms in our farming career. And it's a resource that now we use for different purposes beyond production agriculture. Yeah, and, and that's sort of unusual for a lot of the aquifers uh, around the country to see a stable aquifer. I mean, the Ogallala has certainly in lots of areas dropped quite a bit. Uh, you know, if you go to California, you know, a lot of those aquifers are definitely depleting. And 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 even the aquifer where I was from, the, the Grand Ron aquifer in southeastern Washington, northeastern Oregon, has certainly started to deplete. But because of that consistent water quality that you had, you were able to sort of take advantage of that to do a value add. Let's go through that process. Sure. So our the one thing that I didn't tell you is our aquifer is the closest designated basin to the Denver uh, Metropolitan Front Range. So you can imagine that we have a number of competing interests, uh, not only for our water quantity, but certainly for the water quality. And one of those competing interests here in Weld County is oil and gas. And in my county, which is uh, a large county. It's one of the largest counties, certainly in, in Colorado, and it's one of the larger counties across the country. Um, we have more oil and gas wells in our county than all of Saudi Arabia combined. So we're a, a heavily oil and gas diverse county, and water is often sought after for the use in the hydraulic fracturing process. Uh, most people call it hydraulic uh, fracking. And a number of years ago, our former state governor, Governor Bill Owens, he had acquired uh, the overwhelming majority of the wells in my designated basin. He and an investment group had, had purchased a number of these wells. And one of the uses that they were using these water wells for was for this fracking purpose. They wanted to put a pipeline across our farm to deliver water to one of the energy companies. And uh, a neighbor and I got together and we one, we didn't want a pipeline going through our farm, but two, we we sat there and actually thought about this. Should we should we be trying to advocate against the use of this water or we should, should we become part of it? 
And after some long conversations, my neighbor and I decided that, you know, we want to be a part of something like this to help keep the family farm in the family. Yeah. Too many times we see uh, situations in our farming career, and I've been in a number of these, where I had to seek off-farm income. Uh, I represented a, a Pioneer Hybrid for 19 years. I was a certified welder for a period of time. I, I did a lot of those things that brought revenue back to our, our farm uh, to help make ends meet. This was just another opportunity. So two farmers got together. They formed a company. We went through the legal process to um, amend our well permits to include industrial purposes to our well permits. And now we lease those wells uh, to Chevron for the use in their energy operations here in Weld County. That doesn't come without controversy. Uh, much like our original conversation when the neighbor and I got together talking about should we support this or should we be against this? Uh, there's some folks in, in my community and certainly in Northeastern Colorado that question the why behind it. But the thing of it is, is this water will make its way back to agriculture once the energy sector is done with that. And that could be five years from now, that could be 15 years from now. It's really hard to say. Um, but it's certainly helped us uh, solidify our, our balance sheet. It's provided us some revenue when we've needed it most. Uh, and in like 2018, on all of the acres that I farmed, I only harvested a crop on 400 acres. We had 11 hailstorms come across our farm. And if we hadn't had this other opportunity working for us, I'm not sure we would have weathered that storm. Yeah, yeah. And in in a lot of that water is when it goes into the fracking process, it's not disappearing. I mean, it's actually probably going to, what, percolate back up into the aquifer anyway at some point? Well, and a lot of that water comes back to the surface in the oil itself, and they separate off that water. And, and sometimes uh, they'll reuse that water for hydraulic fracking purposes. But there's also technology in the industry today where they're actually cleaning that water back to a potable standard and, and using it either uh, for municipal purposes or industry purposes, or sometimes they just turn that water loose back to the natural stream or river. And, and with the current political structure in Colorado, like I say, is, is that something you think is going to continue for another five years, 10 years, but eventually it's likely going to dry up or, or what's your thoughts on that? Colorado is known for the most regulated oil and gas industry in the United States. And, and I think that pressure is going to continue on the energy sector. Even though this area has a lot of natural gas and a lot of oil in this region, uh, the opinions in our current administration and certainly with uh, the state legislature are such that they want to see oil and gas disappear or become so regulated that it happens on a very small footprint. Yeah. So the energy sector is hurrying up and 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 doing as much uh, exploration and extraction as possible under the current permits that they have in hand. But in about two to three years, there's going to be a turning point. A lot of those permits will have been developed. A lot of that infrastructure will have been built. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how the energy sector then continues to survive and grow moving forward. You know, I told you before, Weld County is a robust county. We're, uh, we're huge in the oil and gas. We're, we're one of the leading agricultural counties in, in the country. In fact, we're, we're number one in terms of total sales, if, if you exclude the state of California in terms of agricultural revenue. 
Yeah. How we offset our tax obligations or how we pay for government moving forward is in doubt, given the heavy pressures that uh, oil and gas is facing today. I, I can tell you that 82% of our property tax in this county is paid for by oil and gas. If the oil and gas sector disappears or, or those valuations drop, how do we pay for government here? Yeah, and yeah. Or does it mean that they'll push some of that burden over to the farmers and other industries in the county? Yeah, I suspect uh, now that you live in Colorado too, Paul, that you know that that's going to be um, uh, a big issue. Uh, the size and scope of government is not getting smaller here in the state. It's getting larger. Yeah. So citizens everywhere will be paying a lot more in tax. Well, we have a special session to deal with the property taxes because for most people, they're likely facing a 35 to 40% increase. Now, I'll tell you, because I know about real estate taxes around the U.S. being a, you know, a CPA and Colorado, even after the increase, is still a little bit on the lower side. But, you know, nobody wants to see a 30 or 40% increase all at once. That's for sure. Yep. Amen to that. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, Mark, we're going to go ahead and take a break for a sponsor message, and then we'll come back and have further discussion on some other aspects of your farm that's pretty interesting. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know RoboAgri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, Robo Agri Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, Robo Agri Finance. Welcome back, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast. This is Paul Neefer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Mark Arnish from Northeastern Colorado. So, Mark, I know that, uh, you know, in the last year or two that you're seriously looking at possibly renting some ground or selling some ground, et cetera, for a solar project. Let's go through some of those details, why you were thinking about it and, and what you finally decided to do. You know, that's an interesting question. We weren't really looking to be involved in the, the solar business. Uh, that solar business actually came looking for us. And it's because of our proximity. We farm right around a major transmission line. Uh, I have farm ground that butts up against a large uh, substation in this area. And as I've discovered through these conversations, that solar really likes those locations. And Paul, being out here, you can see how flat our farm ground is. Yep. Much of the farm ground out here has been laser leveled. It's as flat as a, a tabletop. And uh, Colorado has been known for a long time to have so much vibrant sunlight. I, I heard something like we, we experience eight hours of sunlight nearly 330 days out of a calendar year. So solar is wanting to come here. 
And so we kept receiving inquiries. You'd get that postcard in the mail. You'd get that telephone call. You'd have somebody drive in your, your yard. And after a while, we started listening. And uh, we had three solar companies, very large solar companies coming after my farm ground and a, and a neighbor's farm ground. And at one time, we had a document sitting in front of us that was going to place Colorado's largest solar farm here. It was going to encompass nearly 2,700 contiguous acres right in the heart of Prospect Valley. And we were looking at it really close. And and ultimately, you decided not to do it. What, what was the main reason for that? You know, the main reason we decided not to do it is being a steward of the land. We we take care of the farm. We take care of our livestock. We take care of our, our water. And solar just didn't seem to fit those criteria. Uh, we were going to change the landscape uh, forever, at least in my forever. We were looking at a 50-year farm lease, and I don't think I'll see the end of that. Yeah. And that that was tough. You know, we we take the strategy of we're an all of the above energy source county. We're we're all of the above energy generation area. Uh, I'm a strong supporter of of solar and and renewables and and oil and gas and and so I see the value of that. But it was going to be, I think, a detriment to my farm family. It was going to be a detriment to our community. It was going to have an impact to the dairies and the feedlots and the elevator and the chicken farms that we have in our community. And at the end of the day, it just wasn't a right fit for us. Uh, that, that's not to say that you couldn't take other acres in our community or in our region and make good, sensible use of it. But these prime irrigated farmland yeah. acres right in the heart of our valley, it, it just didn't make sense. Uh, yeah. We just couldn't bring ourselves to do it. Yeah, I sort of agree with you. I mean, if if you're out in the desert, let's say, or non-irrigated, you're not on top of a good aquifer and, and the ground is basically just there and it really isn't going to produce much, you know, the solar really makes sense. But where you're on a really nice aquifer like you guys are, uh, I definitely can understand why you ended up not doing that. Now, I think as you made that decision and so on, you also were starting to look at um, perhaps doing some type of conservation easement. Uh, go through some of the details for the listeners out there, what a conservation easement in Colorado is and what your thought process on that was. Sure. So right on the heels of this conversation around solar came this idea of, you know, at the end of the day, what we're really looking to do, do is keep our agricultural community intact. And uh, I I was aware and, and I was you know, somewhat exposed to some of the conservation easements that we've had here in this state before. And so we started looking at how can we make sure that agricultural uh, values and agricultural practices remain on this land for a long period of time. And so we reached out to a group out of uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, that's helping us put together a conservation easement on our farm that will keep agricultural practices happening uh, as they are today for the next 99 years. And for that, we basically give up the surface rights or basically give up the surface control of these farms for 99 years. And that doesn't mean that we can't improve our, our practices. That doesn't mean that we can't enhance the way we farm these properties in the future. It's just we're giving up the ability to put a solar farm or, or someday maybe development on our farm in exchange for keeping it in farm ground. And, and that means a lot to me. That means a lot to my family. Uh, 
in return for that, we receive a donation or what the value is for the farm ground today versus what the enhancement factor would be. In this case, it would have been solar. And then we receive that as a tax deduction that we can use for the next 15 years or so. And uh, we're still working through the process. So we certainly know that there's going to be some value and some tax savings in this whole plan. But first and foremost, we're going to be able to keep my family's farm in, in the family as a farm for a very long time. And, and, and Paul, I, I can't tell you a better adjective than this, but that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so in your situation, you're looking at uh, primarily it would be the tax deduction, the tax savings per, uh, per se. You know, other states, I know, for example, uh, I know farm family in, in Maryland that are looking at maybe doing a conservation easement. But this is where the state actually will pay up to 75 percent of the fair market value of the property. Are you getting any payment or is this strictly just for the tax deduction? This is strictly for the tax deduction. And okay. uh, that, that means that as farmer, I need to go out and actually have uh, income to pay taxes. I guess. <laughs> uh, and so I've got my work cut out for me here in the next uh, five or 15 years, however long that might take. But yeah, so the, the deduction is what we'd receive. We're not receiving any kind of monetary compensation. Okay. Because, you know, like I say, some areas, even in Colorado, there's other areas that when you do the conservation conservation easement, there'll be a payment. And for the listeners out there, typically that payment can be tax-free. Uh, if, if, if the easement is affecting all the ground and you have enough basis, enough cost basis in that ground, that easement can reduce the basis. Now, eventually, if you ever sell the property, you're going to pay the tax at that point in time. Or like with a lot of tax issues, if you pass away, it cures some of that issue, at least under the current law, you get a step up in basis. So that that is something uh, very interesting. And like I say, for a, a typical farm family that wants to keep farming, uh, you know, the control of that farm is, is even more important than maybe the net worth of that farm. And by doing it this way, you don't have to worry about, you know, development pressure or, um, you know, uh, like say solar, wind towers, whatever it might be. Now, as with all legal documents like this, potentially, you know, if there's imminent domain down the road, you may or may not have some issues at that point in time, but at least you've done something where you're in control of it, not somebody else. Right. And, and that was the takeaway. Um, I still talk to my dad uh, routinely about things like this. He's He's not involved in our farm directly as much as he used to be, but it's important to him to keep control of the surface and keep it as a farm. And our farm family is really not really sellers of farm ground. So if we could pass this through, and as you pointed out, take advantage of some of these tax advantage strategies, we we would contemplate other conservation easements in the future as well. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, I always try to end uh, these podcasts with at least three or four key questions. So the first one I always like to ask is uh, who was your mentor along this uh journey that you've had? Oh, you know, I, Paul, I haven't had just one mentor. I've had a whole host of mentors that, you know, of course, my, my father, my grandfather's, my, my father-in-law was a huge mentor to me uh, early in my farming career. He just did things differently than our family did. And he was a, a big mentor for me. Um, I've cherished my relationships that I've had over the times with that uh, 
my participation in uh, National Corn Growers, uh, American Farm Bureau, things like that. And so I have a number of those mentors, but two that really float to the top was Bob Sakata. He was a legendary vegetable grower here in Colorado who really helped me understand the onion business. Uh, he, he's just an absolute wonderful wealth of knowledge. I've always needed that. And then you're going to find this a little ironic. I, I've hired a business coach not long ago and uh, to help us do things better with more organizational skill. And and uh, Bruce Vandesteeg is clearly my mentor here today. He's a class act and he's a great sounding board. Okay. Okay. And then, uh, you know, being a full-time farmer and a family and so on, do you have time for any hobbies? <laughs> well, I, I laugh because I'm a religious uh a, a religious CSU football fan. We haven't had a lot to cheer about here, but that's uh, uh, taught me patience. So I'm a college uh, sports fanatic. And then uh, every so often when it the time is right, I can get out and lose a lot of golf balls on a golf course. But uh, th those are my two hobbies right there. I, I definitely lose a few golf balls. And uh, my oldest son has talked me into playing in a uh, PGA Pro-Am tournament in Hawaii in January. So we'll see how many golf balls I lose at that point in time. So <laughs> I know I'm going to lose a few dollars out of my wallet. That much I already know. So uh, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Oh, you know, there's two things that definitely keep me up awake at night. And uh, I've always had kind of a knack to pivot within my farming operation, pivot away from those things that are, are not working and pivot to those things that will uh, I, I just hope and, and pray that that luck and that ability to change uh, doesn't leave me. Uh, you know, there's maybe another thing that we're going to pivot into here soon on the farm, and I just need to make sure that all my ducks are in the row. Uh, but then the other thing that really keeps me awake at night is making sure that I have the right people in the right seats in our, our farming enterprise. And uh, we're trying to hire for a farm manager right now to replace Casey. And I'm losing a lot of sleep over that, trying to find the right fit, not just from a competency standpoint, but from a culture standpoint. And uh, I know you can do this wrong. I yeah. just want to make sure that we're going to do this right. Yeah. Now, the, you know, the, the labor issue is always, you know, if you can find a good person, you want to do whatever you can to keep them. And the problem is a lot of times you don't find the right person. So that definitely is something you got to work on. So, yeah. and then finally, what's your definition of success in farming? Mm. Oh, you know, that's a good question. When I, it's changed over my career, I, I just finished growing my 30th crop this year. And my uh, 30th crop winning looks like a lot much different than what it did in my first year. But I, I would say winning is uh, winning together, winning together as a farm, uh, certainly uh, thinking big, having a little bit of resiliency. Uh, doing those things that are different, uh, making sure that uh, we're, we decommoditize the commodity. And then winning also is embracing the journey, uh, yeah. lean into a lot of these things that we experience, good, bad, and indifferent on the farm. And uh, that's what I would say winning looks like to me today. Okay, perfect, perfect. Anything else you'd like to add, Mark, before we sign off? You know, I, this has been a wonderful experience. I sure appreciate you taking the time to do this and to talk about agriculture. I, I really enjoy your podcast and I really appreciate your perspective. So it's been a humbling experience and a privilege to be on today. No, well, no, the privilege is ours. So again, this is the Top Producer Podcast uh, presented uh, by, well, by Top Producer. And this is Paul Neefer, your host, signing off. Uh -huh.